Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome to Money for the Rest of Us, a personal finance show on money, how it works, how to invest it, and how to live without worrying about it. I'm your host, David Stein, and today is episode 110. It's titled, How Worried Should You Be About Bail-Ins? Today's episode was suggested by Leon, who is currently an educator in South America, but has nine years of service, I believe, teaching in the state of Colorado. And so he has nine years of service with the Colorado State Pension Plan. And he expressed worries about whether that pension would be there for him. At some point, he plans to return to Colorado to continue teaching and will be part of the plan. And so was worried about the potential to, to collect on this pension, these years of service, and the money that has been contributed on his behalf. He also asked me about bail-ins, specifically as relates to the deal in 2013 to rescue the banks in Cyprus. Now, the term bail-in is one I had not heard of several years ago, and I googled it, and I found this, this article in The Economist titled, What is a Bail-in? And they write, a bailout is when outside investors rescue a borrower by injecting money to help service a debt. Bailouts are failing of failing banks in Greece, Portugal, and Iceland were primarily financed by taxpayers. By contrast, a bail-in forces the borrower's creditors to bear some of the burden by having part of the debt they are owed written off. In the case of Cyprus, the creditors in question were bondholders and depositors with more than 100,000 euros in their accounts. At the height of the financial crisis, governments avoided resorting to bail-ins out of concern that it might cause panic among the creditors of other banks. Even the bondholders of Irish banks were initially spared. But as time has passed and the cost of government bailouts has risen, the appeal of asking private sector investors to take a hit has increased. So bailouts are new outside money added to shore up a bank's or a pension plan's finances. A bail-in is where an entity's liabilities are reduced. By bondholders taking a haircut, it could be depositors, it could be pensioners. Now, bail-ins are not new. Let me share with you one of the most interesting episodes of a bail-in. It occurred in the early 1700s in France, but it starts with a gentleman named John Law. He was born in Edinburgh, Scotland in 1671. His father was a goldsmith and a banker, and at the age of 14, John Law joined his father's counting house, and for three years, he learned the family business. At age 18, after his father's death, Law left for London, where he frequently visited the gaming houses and usually won due to his astuteness in calculating probabilities. Early success in gambling led Law to take greater and greater, even reckless risk, and eventually began losing more than winning 
to the point he had to mortgage his inherited estate in order to cover the losses. Nine years of the London gambling life ended after Law was challenged to a duel by the jealous Edward Wilson, who did not appreciate Law's flirtatious advances with the Lady Elizabeth Villiers. Law won the duel, but was accused of murder by the family members of Edward Wilson. And they, apparently they had some ties and some influence, and so Law was sentenced to death for this murder. The sentence was later reduced, and Law managed to escape prison. In the Gazette, the local newspaper, the the ad seeking Law's capture read, Captain John Law, a Scotchman, aged 26, a very tall, lean man, above six feet high, with large pock holes in his face, apparently from smallpox, big nose, and speaking broad and loud. Law spent most of the next 18 years traveling through continental Europe, spending his mornings studying and developing theories on finance and banking, and his evening at the gaming houses. Gambling was his primary source of income due to his improved ability to calculate probabilities. In 1715, the French king, Louis XIV, died, leaving France's finances near ruin due to three major wars waged by the king. The national debt was 3 billion livres, later known as francs. The heir to the throne, Louis XV, was only seven when the king died, so Regent Philippe de Orleans, the Duke of Orleans, came to power to lead France until the young king came of age. Now, fortunately for John Law, he was good friends with the Duke of Orleans, and the perilous state of France's finances provided Law with the opportunity to test his financial and banking theories. Law was given a charter to open up the Banque Générale in 1716. The bank was capitalized by government loans and deposits by the regent and other prominent citizens. Some of them even donated land, so it was partially a land bank. The bank issued banknotes, it made commercial loans, and by 1718 it began to collect state tax revenues that were denominated in the bank's notes. And so the, the citizens could pay their taxes to the bank using the bank notes, and then the, the bank would, would collect it and give it to the state. That same year, 1718, the bank's name was changed to the Banque Royale. The bank's notes were declared government-issued. And so suddenly, these, these private bank notes for the private bank were now considered government currency. And John Law became the finance minister of France and the head of what it was now the central bank, the Banque Royale. As finance minister, Law had to deal with the huge national debt. His most novel idea to reduce the debt burden, which he launched in 1717 before becoming finance minister, was to create the the Compagnie de Occident, commonly known as the Mississippi Company. He offered shares in this company in exchange for government debt. Investors could swap their illiquid government holdings for shares in a company that had held the economic rights to the entire Louisiana Territory in the New World, with the city of New Orleans sitting at the mouth of one of the most of the world's largest navigable rivers. With the capital law raised, he absorbed other French trading companies, given law 
and the Mississippi Company a virtual monopoly on all long-distance French commerce. Law and the Mississippi Company also acquired the tobacco monopoly, the Royal Mint, the French Tax Collection Agency, and the entirety of the French national debt. They just swapped it out for shares in this in the Mississippi Company. William Goetzman, who I referenced last week, writes in the, his book, Money Changes Everything, that, quote, within a few amazing years, John Law had achieved a remarkable feat. Using the new financial engineering and his own economic analysis of the role of money in the economy, he had effectively privatized the financial operations of France and put them in the, into the hands of the public through the issuance of public shares of stock. He had replaced a depleted currency based on scarce silver specie with a fiat money that could respond to market demand. He created a corporate governance structure that could respond strategically to France's competitors in the rush to globalization. He had also created a world that depended fundamentally on the financial market. Now, I read that quote, and that's sort of taking today's financial terms and applying it to what was happening in 1700. But this idea of fiat currency, that, that was new for, for it was I believe it's one of the earliest uses in these theories. And France was running this grand experiment. Given the Mississippi Company's scale and growth prospects, its shares became extremely popular in the secondary market. They were traded on, on, one, on the French side streets. It was sort of this, this developing market, a stock exchange essentially, for these shares. So prices rose from 400 livres in August 1719 to over 1,800 by December 1719. Meanwhile, throughout 1719, the the Banque Royale was busy printing money. They were taking advantage of, now they were fiat currency, they could print money. At the same time, the French government took measures to prevent citizens from transferring species such as gold and silver to other countries or to display objects of precious stones and metal. And in some cases, to not be able to even own more than 500 livres of gold or silver. And this was all an attempt to establish the preeminence of fiat currency. In February 1720, Law merged the Mississippi Company with the Banque Royale. A month later, Law set a fixed exchange rate between banknotes and company shares, essentially turning equity holdings in this Mississippi company into money. This would be just like the U.S. Federal Reserve, the central bank merging with Google, and then the central bank setting a fixed U.S. dollar to Google share exchange rate. Kind of a crazy idea. And it turned out that this fixed exchange rate was Law's fatal mistake, given the Banque Royale was continued to print money. Holders of the original French national debt who had converted their illiquid claims to shares of a publicly traded company, which then soared in value, could now cash in those shares for a fixed amount of money while avoiding the risk of sending share prices lower if they had tried to liquidate their equity holdings in the secondary market. Some of those investors even used the banknotes they received from converting their Mississippi company shares to buy gold and silver and ship it out of the country, despite the laws against cross-border transport. 
So many investors lined up to take advantage of the exchange offer that the central bank, the Banco Real, began printing even more money to redeem shares. Inflation ensued, and we know that's, that's what causes inflation. It, it's a flood of money that starts to strain the capacity of a country's private sector businesses to produce goods and services. It's the ability to produce, that's the wealth of a country. The money is a token, and if you got too much money, that can cause inflation. Eventually, the central bank, this, this merged Banque Royale and the Mississippi Company, was forced to devalue the currency by lowering the exchange rate that you got from a share. So, so you were getting 9,000 9, livres per share of Mississippi stock. They lowered it to 5,000 livres per share. This caused panic as investors rushed to the bank to redeem shares. Riots ensued as investors realized the system would not hold. There were just too many banknotes, and prospects for the Mississippi company were, were rapidly the impression of the market. I mean, we talk about markets are driven by fear and greed. The market for Mississippi company share stocks zoomed to an elevated rate because of greed, because of all the, the apparent wealth in the Louisiana Territory, and then investors began to doubt whether that wealth was even there. Charles Mackey wrote a, a really fascinating book. It's called The Extraordinary, Extraordinary Popular Delusions and the Madness of the Crowds. It was published in 1841, and he writes about this Mississippi company bubble. He writes about the South Sea bubble. He writes about tulips, the tulip bubble. So he, here's his quote. He says, The value of shares in Mississippi stock had fallen very rapidly, and few indeed were found to believe the tales that had once been told of the immense wealth of that region. A last effort was therefore tried to restore the public confidence in the Mississippi project. For this purpose, a general conscription of all the poor wretches in Paris was made by order of government. Upward of 6,000 of the very refuse of the population were impressed, as if in times of war, and were provided with clothes and tools to be embarked from New Orleans to work in the gold mines alleged to abound there. They were paraded day after day in the streets with their pikes and shovels and then sent off in small detachments to outports to be shipped to America. Two-thirds of them never reached their destination but dispersed themselves over the country, sold their tools for what they could get, and returned to their old course of life. In less than three weeks afterwards, one half of them were to be found again in Paris. The maneuver, however, caused a trifling advance in Mississippi stock. Many persons of superabundant gullibility, I love that phrase, Superabundant gullibility believed that the operations had begun in earnest and that gold and silver ingots would again be found in France. But not for long, because share prices again crashed. The Banque Royale's offices were ransacked and John Law fled the country. In fact, Mackey says John Law lost everything except for one huge diamond because he had taken a lot of his wealth and bought estates around France. And then <laughs> the, the citizens were so angry with John Law. One, at one point, they came and they thought he was in his, his coach, his horse-drawn carriage, and, and his rider had made a slight comment, and, and the, the crowds came and thought he was in there and basically tore the entire coach apart, and, and the coachman barely escaped 
with his life. Let me pause here to share some words from this week's sponsors. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one program and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. With everything getting more expensive these days, it's wise to find ways to cut costs and boost performance at the same time. You can do that with NetSuite. And by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com david. That's netsuite.com david. netsuite.com david. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. So then what you had is you you had the stock falling and, and people were lining up and they wanted to either redeem their stock shares or pull their money out of the bank. And there were riots at the bank. And there were deaths. There were the, 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 the soldiers would be outside the gates of the bank, and a lot of times they would be pushing and shoving, and people, people would die in, in the press in terms of just the, the sheer mania of the situation. And it, it was a little unclear because as I read Goatsman book, Goatsman's book on this incident and I read Mackey's book, my sense is there was definitely a bail-in because at one point the city of Paris stepped up and said, the old banknotes for the banks are no longer good. We will, they produce, I believe, 25 million livre worth of notes backed by the city of Paris and started exchanging them. But at some point, the the, the higher denominated notes were outlawed and said of the original Banque Royale were said, we're just not worth anything. But it, it appears that the depositors got hit and because they weren't able to get their money out. Certainly the shareholders of the Bank of Mississippi, which had merged with the central bank, and so it was all share of stock was the same as money, and it got devalued, and there was a bail-in. So what's the lesson here? All financial systems rely on trust credibility, and good judgment. At first, the French citizens trusted John Law and and these schemes. They believed in the financial prospects of the Mississippi Company. But John Law 
didn't use good judgment in setting a fixed exchange rate. And it, it became very clear that the government was printing way too much money beyond the capacity of the economy to absorb that. So can balance happen? Absolutely. When we look at bondholders of banks, those that have invested their capital, not depositors, but just the bondholders that are lending to banks, when a bank fails, they, they should take a loss. And, and that's, that's part of a bail-in. A bail-in is if you have a liability, your liability gets reduced. So if I have an asset in a bank in terms of a, an, an investment as a bondholder, I should be hit if the bank fails. If you have an equity investment in a bank, you should be hit. Now, if you're a depositor in the bank, that's where it gets a little, a little scary because that's what happened to Cyprus. Cyprus, as I mentioned, is part of the European Union. And as a result, they use the euro. So the central bank in Cyprus and in the government there did not have control of their currency. So when their banks began to fail, it was outside forces and authorities could dictate the terms of the bail-in. And they said depositors that had more than 100,000 euros would lose the money. 47% of deposits were lost and, and in this of the Cyprus deposit holders. That's a huge hit. Can you imagine losing half of your wealth because it was at the bank? And so can balance happen to banks? Yes. And as a safety, I mean, as a minimum, what we should do is keep our balance at the extent we have cash balances at banks, keep them below the deposit, the insurance amount. Usually banks like in the U.S., we have the FDIC, where the government says they will bail out. If a bank fails, if you have less than $100,000 in there, then you're protected. In fact, I think it's $200,000. Now, I actually was in, I, my deposits at one point were in a bank that failed, and it, and it happened so quietly. It was one of the first banks to fail. It was called NetBanks. And I got notice from, essentially they just said that the bank had been taken over by a, another bank, and, but they didn't ever use the word fail. They just said this bank sort of took it over to bought it. And I just thought it was a buyout. And then later I realized that the bank had actually failed and, and my deposits were protected. But there's no guarantee of that either. In the Cyprus deal, there was talk about small deposits. Those less than 100,000 euros would need to pay about a 65 to 6.7% tax, just sort of a wealth tax to help fund the bailout. And so bail-ins can happen for banks. Hopefully they won't. Hopefully politicians will use good credit, good judgment, and, and some credibility there. But it can happen. What about pension plans? That was Leon's worry, underfunded pension plans. It can happen. There can be a bail-in where promised benefits to future retirees or even existing retirees can be, can be reduced. There was a law passed in the United States in December 2014. It allowed multi-employer pension funds to reduce benefits if they are projected to run out of money. And there's an example of that, the Central States Pension Fund, which covers workers and retirees from more than 1,500 companies across a range of industries from trucking, construction, that, that, that is a pension plan that is severely 
underfunded, in distress, and they have announced that they are going to cut benefits for existing retirees. Now, it has to be approved by the Treasury Department. It's still in litigation, but it can happen. What should you do to protect yourself against bail-ins? Well, first, we need to to diversify our source of our retirement income. If you are part of a defined benefit pension plan, you need to follow what's going on with the plan. You need to read the annual statement. You, I know there's there's one listener who I think he's part of a Teamster plan, and that we we've exchanged some emails. He joined the pension committee and became one of the union representatives on this pension plan to understand what is going on. But if your plan is underfunded or or even if it's if it's adequately funded, I wouldn't if I was part of it, I would see as this is a potential source of retirement income, but I would save 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 outside of the plan. Most companies now that have pension plans also offer some type of 401k plan. I would save in that also and if the pension plan is there and you get partial benefits, That's great. In terms of banks, keep your bank deposits below the the FDIC or the other country's insurance, deposit insurance amount. And and don't keep a ton of money in the bank, especially with with rates so low. It makes no sense to keep a huge amount of money in banks. We can also keep assets outside of the financial system. I've talked about this as, as pockets of independence. We can own gold coins. And, and, the, and the point here is not to go to the, to the extreme, but to, to have things. It could be coin, gold coins. It can be lands. Something that's not tied to assets that potentially could be impacted by a bail-in. And then we have to monitor what's going on. Just, just be aware of what's going on with the economy, what's going on with the markets, what's going on with legislation. We don't have to spend hours and hours and hours doing it. You can listen to hopefully a few podcasts like this one that cover it. We have to keep a balanced perspective though. These There's, there's all types of risk. And a few episodes ago, I shared a phrase by, by Ben Hunt where we need to minimize our maximum regret. So we take actions to protect ourselves against worst case scenarios. A bail-in is a worst case scenario. It is it is a travesty to have one pension plan or wealth impacted by decisions out completely outside of your control based on what politicians have done, what a pension committee has has done and and, and that's a travesty. But we we need to take steps to minimize our maximum regret. But we can't be overly terrified and panicky. Back in episode 96 I I shared this quote from Seneca, episode 96 was Five Wealth Lessons from a Stoic. And Seneca wrote, There are more things likely to frighten us than there are to crush us. We suffer more often in imagination than in reality. Accordingly, some things torment us more than they ought. Some torment us before they ought. And some torment us when they ought not torment us at all. No fear is so ruinous and so uncontrollable as panic fear. Balance, we need to understand there's a possibility. We need to protect ourselves to the extent we can by diversifying our source of retirement income, keeping assets outside of the financial system, keep our bank deposits below the insurance amount, monitor what's going on with investment conditions in the economy and political developments. 
but not spend all our time tormenting ourselves about what ifs. Protect ourselves and then go on with our lives. You can get show notes for this episode at moneyfortherestofus.net. That's also where you can sign up for my weekly free insider's guide where each week I share with you the, the show notes as well as a summary article describing that particular week's episode as well as other valuable content, including an invite to the periodic webcast I do for members of the Insider's Guide where you can ask me any question you want on personal finance and investing and I give current insight to what's going on with markets and the economy. So that's at moneyfortherestofus.net. If you would like a little more help with your investments and understand what's going on, you can become a member of the Money for the Rest of Us Hub. This is a premium membership site where I interact. We build a community. I'm often getting feedback from members of the Hub. For example, we have model portfolios on the Hub, and, and one of the members pointed out, do you realize, have you really adequately explained that these model portfolios are just publicly traded shares, and it's only potentially only a portion of a, a member's portfolio, whereas if you look at my portfolio, I have pockets of independence, so I have gold, I have private investments, but I have my public investments. The model portfolios are, are, have specific asset allocations and ETF holdings for public portfolios, and, and based on the feedback from the member, I'm, I need to build out on the hub and provide a better framework for how to to handle these pockets of independence. So this is an evolving platform based on interaction from members, based on what they're sharing in the forum, based on emails they receive. And you can become a member of that. Try it out. You can get information at moneyfortherestofushub.com. Everything I've shared with you in this episode has been for general education only. I have not considered your specific risk profile. I've not provided investment advice. Simply general education on money, investing in the economy. Have a great week.